Today, my last announcement is that we are beginning a new series today in this book of Proverbs called Wisdom's Way. You guys have seen, uh, hopefully, some of the stuff online, but you are here. Welcome. Uh, We are going to be, over the next 15 weeks, all the way up to Thanksgiving, uh, looking at the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament, this book of ancient uh, wisdom literature, of poetry. And so we're going to talk about that, um, obviously not just in the teaching today, but um, over the next 15 weeks. Some of you, if you've spent any time in the book of Proverbs before, you might have the same question that Allie Lindley did at Neighborhood Dinner this week when she knew we were going to do Proverbs. She said, how in the world are you going to preach this? Because if you've spent time in Proverbs, it's 915 of these little Proverbs make up most of the bodies, these little 915 sayings, where you, in all like truthfulness, you could do one week on each of those little verses, unpacking and detailing and reflecting, and, and I don't think you guys want to spend three years like going through this. So here's what we're going to do. Now, the book of Proverbs, this is a little bit of Bible nerdery on the outline. The first nine chapters are nine speeches on wisdom. That's where we're going to spend nine weeks, is going through those nine speeches. After that, we're going to spend some time pulling together topics from those assorted little Proverbs and kind of um, pulling them together and juxtaposing visions and ideals of you know, wisdom and folly. But that still leaves out a good bit of Proverbs that we're not going to be able to teach on. But we want this series to be a time where we really do immerse ourselves in the wisdom of this book And so that's why we're going to be inviting everyone into a series practice, a a communal collective practice for this series on a a daily meditation of Scripture, daily meditation of Scripture. Now, the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters, and most months have somewhere between 30 and 31 days. I hope this isn't, you guys aren't learning anything new here about your calendar. And so throughout church history, many Christians, Billy Graham, uh, the American evangelist being one of them, identified the value in reading one proverb a day based on whatever the day was on your calendar. You go and read that chapter. So today's the 15th. You would go read Proverbs 15. And you would just read over that. And then as you do, in the morning, starting your day, as you, you know, getting coffee and getting going, maybe listening to it on a Bible app, you kind of just pick one, two, maybe three at most little of those Proverbs that stick out, and then you kind of carry that with you as you go through the day, kind of chewing on it, meditating it, trying to find ways to apply it, pondering it, and just allowing that each day to kind of sink in a little bit deeper. As we do this, we will end up reading the book of Proverbs around three times in our time through here. And now that might sound like repetition to you, but that's the way Proverbs was written. It was written for a lifetime, not just three months, but a lifetime of repetition and meditation and application. And so we're going to be stepping into this. That's the invitation. I'm not, there's not going to be a ruler every single week where you have to show me the book of Proverbs, where you've been highlighting and what you've been doing. But this is an invitation for those of us who want to take a deeper step into God's word. Now, this also connects to, if you were at our prayer night last Sunday, one of the recurring themes of the prayer night was a desire of many of our people to find ourselves being more committed to God's word, more um, spending time meditating and applying scripture. And so, lo and behold, here we have this new little practice for this series as hopefully a way to do just that. Now, some of you, reading the Bible and uh, the thin little lines and black and white text isn't exactly your uh, favorite thing. Brian Ivey made that evident to me this past week. So for those of you that are looking for something a little bit different in a way to engage with this, I want to make a couple recommendations, and then we'll be, we'll be done, and we'll get into the text. Sound good? Okay, little things real quick. The first is you can pick up. We've given these away for Mark and First Peter, the little uh, ESV. This is Mark's. I don't have the one for Proverbs yet. Um, the, uh, these little things that have um, the biblical text and then a little area for notes for you to write down those one, two, or three that stand out for you. And then be fun by the end of Proverbs that as you go back through it three times, seeing the difference of what stands out over the next few months, these are really cheap. You can grab them uh, either through Crossway or you can order through your local bookstore. Uh, Jeffrey Bezos, he won the human game. He got to space. We all helped him, so we don't need to give him any more of our money. Um, Let's put that into our local economy. Um, So you guys can get that at a local bookstore, or you can give it to Jeff, whatever you want to do. There's also the Bible app and another app called Dwell that will read the Bible to you. This is awesome for like getting ready in the morning, brushing your teeth, like in the shower. You can just have problems and be listening to it while you're getting ready. And oh, that one stuck out. Go back and what was that? Okay, that's going to be the one for today. And then some of you 
um, people that are on Instagram and like uh, Instagram a lot, um, visual imagery. Uh, Alabaster makes these really cool little Bibles that um, partner uh, different like texts or verses with like some really cool photography. And so this is their one on Proverbs. You can get this for relatively inexpensive. Um, so if you don't want to stare at just like this all day and want something to kind of look forward to, there's um, Alabaster as well. So you got apps, you got books, all the recommendations, 15 weeks. There we go. We're done. All right. Now, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. So just a moment ago, I told everyone we are setting out on a 15-week series in the book of Proverbs, a series that we're calling Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in the book of Proverbs. Now, this idea of the good life is something that we all want. We all want a good life, a life worth living, one of abundance and fruitfulness, of influence. We all want to be wise people, leaving an impact on the world and in our neighborhoods, on our families at the very least. But that chase for the good life is quite difficult in the world of brokenness and loss that we live in, let alone our own missteps and failures. The good life is actually a little bit more difficult to find than we at least would hope. Lucky for us, the book of Proverbs is here to help. Why don't you join me in standing as we read the opening poem of Proverbs today, verses 1 through 7. So I'll read this over us, and then we'll move into our time together. Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the word of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so, Father, our prayer as we set out on this series is that we might become wise people, that we might live and find at least some some perceptible, maybe even imperfect, but still perceptible experience of the good life, radiating this out into our communities and cities. God, we pray that you'd speak through your word And God, we pray that as we unpack uh, this book today, really setting a trajectory and a course for where we're going, that you might aid us, uh, lighting our hearts up with an excitement and a joy at the invitation of the book of Proverbs. In your name we pray and we ask, amen. You may be seated. So if it's not evident immediately to us, what we just read, those opening seven verses, this is uh, providing all of the answers to the big questions and about the purpose of this book. When we open up the book of Proverbs, right here in this verse, seven verses, it's telling us, this is what this book is for. This is what you just opened. It opens the big questions of, uh, you'll see behind me where we're kind of going today. These questions of, what is the book of Proverbs? What is this thing? These 31 chapters, these 915 sayings. Why the book of Proverbs? What is it for? Why is this book part of, of the scripture? Why is it part of the Bible? Why is it God's word to us? And then to ask, who is this book for? And then finally, how are we to read the book of Proverbs? As we look at these first seven verses, we find, what is this book? Why is this book? What is this book? Or sorry, who is this book for? And and how are we to read it? Now, a little bit of a couple opening notes before we get in. The first is just to acknowledge what we're going into for the next 15 weeks with this book is entirely different than just about anything we've done in the life of Collective Church. Most of Collective Church's preaching has largely existed in the world of prose and discourse. We've been in 1 Peter, we've been in Ephesians, we've been in Hebrews, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, we just finished up Time in Acts. All of those are a particular genre of reading. And now we're going to be making a stark jump into ancient Near Eastern poetry. And so what I want to do today is as we unpack, you're going to find me pointing out little things that maybe I wouldn't normally call attention to within our teaching time. Because this work of form and repetition is what the genre invites us and how we actually receive it for what it's trying to say. I'm going to highlight some of that today. 
But my big hope today, just to set this out before us with these questions, is to show Proverbs not as random practical aphorisms, as Proverbs is most often. If you've grown up in the church, the primary way that you've received and used Proverbs is random little one-liners to make your life a little bit better, to get a little bit wiser, a little bit smarter, a little less dumb maybe. But what I wanna try to show today is Proverbs is actually central to the story that the Bible is telling. It's talking to the whole flood of the narrative of all of the Bible, bringing it all to a head with the book of Proverbs as ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and a story which invites our stories to be part of it. This is not random advice. This is, this is the story of the Bible at work here. And so with that as the goal, today may feel at times like a little bit of a fire hydrant of, of everything from history to Bible nerdery, which is not a word, but uh, hashtag, you know, what is it? Copyright, TM, 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 Bible nerdery. Uh, but, but here's the thing. I would not be giving this if, if I didn't believe that this was really necessary as we set context for where we're going to be over the next 15 weeks, okay? So there's going to be time. We'll take some deep breaths. We'll come up for air, and then we'll dive a little bit. And, and, but we're going we're gonna to do this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go really well, I think. We'll see. And if not, then we're, we're done. And then the rest, we're just going to be hanging out in poetry land for the rest of the Bible. So here we go. Let's ask that first question. What is the book of Proverbs? Well, we find right here at the beginning of verse 1, it helps us. What is this book of Proverbs? Verse 1 tells us the Proverbs. Okay, good. That's a joke. You guys can laugh at that, right? Thank you. Thank you, guys. I need this today. So the book of Proverbs is a book of Proverbs. This uh, word proverb in the Hebrew is related to this uh, Hebrew verb of to represent something to be like something or to make a comparison. A proverb is, is a way of making something like something else, representing something. Proverbs are these little written models of how the world works that we're invited to pick up and kind of carry and turn over and look at, sit back down and, and kind of look and, and, and investigate and check out. It's a little representation of how the world works. Now, these are not simply an ancient thing. We have these today. A modern proverb, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? That is, that is something about wisdom, about the way the world works. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, others are, are money don't, money don't. Money doesn't grow on trees. Actions speak louder than words. Life is like a box of chocolates. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So many of these proverbs uh, link to something that's happened out in the real world. They make a comparison of one thing to another thing. And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a story there. Someone one time threw a baby out with the bathwater, and they're like, this is a great analogy to like how to, you know, hold on to things that we shouldn't let go of. That poor baby. Now, there's another modern proverb, an increasingly modern one, that's don't read the comments. Now, this is a proverb in the sense that is this about not reading the YouTube comments or the blog post comments on the internet? Yes, but that's come to be utilized as a proverb for a, an entire way of life of not looking for negative feedback. Not going out and looking for, not constructive, but looking for you know, naysayers, people that just want to be destructive and mean. Don't read the comments. It's a proverb. It's a wise saying about how the world works. And so this book, these 31 chapters, bring together 915 of these proverbs, or in verse 2, as it puts it, words of insight. Verse 6 calls them sayings, words of the wise, or even riddles. There's these little ones that you'll find that are that at first glance, like, what in the world is this talking about? And as you chew on it, you turn it over, this little proverb, it ends up opening up all of this information about the way the world works in a new way. And so these 31 chapters range from little versets that are like these few word maxims all the way to whole chapter long speeches. But they are all proverbs, these representations of the way the world really works. Now, it's a book of Proverbs, but who do these Proverbs, it says, belong to? It says, Solomon, son of David and the king of Israel. Now, Solomon, as we know throughout the story of the Bible, as we go back to 1 Kings, we find him as one of the kings, the son of David, who uh, was, at, uh, God asked him, you know, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And what he asks is wisdom. 1 Kings 4 then develops his kind of reign, and it details all of the things about who King Solomon was. And at one point, it says that he wrote and compiled over 3,000 Proverbs. Now, what's interesting, though, is that we only have 915. So there's evidence that at some point later on, someone took Solomon's 3,000 and edited and compiled, did like an anthology, the greatest hits 
of all of Solomon's Proverbs and brought them down into these 915. But even more than that, beyond that, a third of the book, as you'll find, explicitly was not by Solomon. They were by other kings who post-dated Solomon by, in some cases, 250 years. So what we have here is this anthology of Israel's wisdom in the tradition of Solomon, but including more than him. So this leads us to the question then, if Solomon didn't write down all of that this book is, he didn't sit down and go, Proverbs, and you know, he wrote the 31 chapters. This was edited and compiled at some later date. The question is, when did that happen? Now this has importance because we believe as Christians that all of the Bible, like Proverbs with it, didn't drop from the sky but that God was inspiring authors and editors and compilers within their context and time. And it is as we look into the context and understand it better, that sets us up to actually understand the meaning of the text. It's not created in a vacuum that we can do whatever we want with it. It exists through history, and we learn and see it better as we understand that history. Now, this is boring, but track with me, because it's actually going to meet you in a more practical way than you think. Most scholars believe that Proverbs was compiled somewhere around the Persian rule. So this is after the exile of Israel. They would have been, uh, uh, the whole nation fallen, the people scattered out to the nations, and now Persia conquered Babylon, and, and uh, the king of Persia has allowed for some of the Israelites to return back to the promised land, to kind of begin to restore and kind of rebuild things, but all the while under the thumb of Persian rule and oppression. And so this is the context that the, the book is being compiled and brought together in. So the question is, what would be the two major themes or concerns for the people of Israel at this time? The first would be that they were living without a king. Well, they had a king, but it was the Persian Empire. It was not a, an Israelite king. It was not an appointed king, their king. And in fact, the whole reason why they're now in exile is they had generations of failed kings. All of these sons of David and sons of Solomon who had absolutely failed in their kingly role. And here they are now back. They've come home, but it's kind of after, you know, after something, the roommates moved out or after the divorce, the house is empty. There's no king to lead us here. And so it has them le- feeling confused. Even more than that, when they consider what their hope and expectation was in the kingdom, in the kingship, in the line of David and Solomon, they were awaiting a particular son of David, one king, this anointed one, this Messiah, as they would call him, who more than just being a king for their nation would actually establish this incredible new kingdom that would bring itself out to the world. And the only language they had for it was talking about the Garden of Eden on pages one and two of the Bible. This existence of life being good, of God's presence dwelling with his people, of of peace and satisfaction and blessing, the good life. And so with no king, it has them looking around wondering, where do we go from here? Confused and lost. Alongside having no king, they also had no temple. The temple which had been destroyed during that first exile after the failure of all of Israel's king. The temple being not just a place of worship, but for Israel, this temporary little garden of Eden while they awaited that coming king who would make all of the earth that way. As they came to the temple, it was like they were returning to the garden of Eden, a place of God's presence, his forgiveness and blessing. The good life with God was all experienced there. So without a king, they're confused. Without the temple, they're weary and they're lost. This is the context in which God, by his spirit, utilizing these sages, brought together the wisdom for these kinds of people. See, the book of Proverbs is not random aphorisms. The book of Proverbs is, as we could summarize, the greatest hits of Israel's wise words for weary and confused people trying to rebuild their lives. And that's a lot like you and me. See, without overreading into the text, it's very easy, at least for me, to identify with Israel here, emerging from that kind of sort of Israel year of being shaken up, my life falling apart, of being isolated from those that I love. And here I am now on the other side, beginning to rebuild, wondering as I'm trying to get going, is everything gonna fall apart all over again? We were were enslaved to Babylon and Persia took them down. How long until, well, it would be Greece in a few hundred years, would come and smash them down and take over? 
And so they're weary and confused, and it's very, I, without overreading myself into the text or us, this was one of those moments as I was studying Proverbs that confirmed this book for us as we come out of the past next year, the past year, and move into the next one. As we do in many ways find ourselves with these people, this book was made for people emerging from loss and isolation, the absence of normalcy, feeling confused and weary, asking those questions. What is the good life, and is it even possible in this? Which leads us to our next and second question, why the book of Proverbs? What are these wise words for? Why compile this anthology for these weary and confused people? What does this bring for us? What is their purpose? Verse 1 tells us the purpose of these wise words is to know wisdom. Now, we're going to unpack this Hebrew word for wisdom here more in the weeks to come. But suffice to say for today, wisdom in the scriptures, especially in the book of Proverbs, is far more than intellectual information. It's about practical skill. It's used to talk about artistry and expertise and creativity and what we build with something. Not creativity in the sense of, of being artistic, but, but being creative in the sense of creating things. It's not just about what's in your mind, but about what you do with your hands, what you build with your life. And wisdom, as we see in this seven verses, is this umbrella term for the seven verbs and 14 nouns of our passage. To know wisdom is to know instruction, to gain understanding and wise dealing, to know about justice and righteousness, about equity, about prudence, that is uh, planning, future prepping, about discretion, being able to discern between the right and the wrong when everything seems gray. It's about guidance when we feel lost. It's about learning. So it is intellectual, but it is far more than that. It's about the life, the way that you live. Now, in the midst of all this, asking that question, why the book of Proverbs, the fact that it is so practical has led many, and I talked about this a minute ago in the announcements, to see the, the book of Proverbs is, uh, is, is really just focused on kind of practical living stuff. Like, yeah, 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 you've got Genesis and Exodus, and there's like, you know, some history stuff, vision for what it means to be human, and you've got, you know, Paul's writings, and the, that stuff's really for like how to follow. And, and wisdom is just kind of like general, kind of like good advice stuff, you know, it looks good on a cup of coffee. But it has really no strong ties to the overarching story of the Bible. Now, you guys are my guinea pigs, and by guinea pigs, I mean I'm actually bringing this out into the public. One of the huge things that I, I got to focus on in my own studies uh, through school was uh, showing and working on how Proverbs exist within the larger story that the Old Testament is telling. That Proverbs is not an isolated little book of good advices. It sees itself as a central component in that larger story. So this is the first time that I'm opening this up to, um, we'll just say, people other than my uh, you know, fellow peers and my professor. So if this implodes, it's my fault. You guys aren't guilty. But here's what I found. This clicks the book of Proverbs into an entire new framework that blew my mind when I began to see this. So what this begins by saying, okay, we're going to operate by assuming that Proverbs is talking to the rest of the Bible, and it sees itself as a part of the story, not an isolated book of good advice. So it begins by saying, okay... We're reading poetry. How did the ancient writers utilize poetry to make emphasis, like boldness or italicies or underline? How did they do it? Through repetition, repeating words and themes and phrases. And so as we look over this passage, what we find are three words that get repeated actually more than twice, but three times, uh, two times exclusively really close together. And it's these words of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So you see it in verse 1. To know is the same word, da'at. It's, it's uh, knowledge, to knowledge. Wisdom, and then understanding. Instruction, we're going to come back to in a second. But first, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. It shows up in verse 2, and it shows up there in verse 6 and 7. To understand a proverb, knowledge, and wisdom. These little three all show up together twice at the beginning and the end of the poem. So the question is, okay, repetition, they're saying something really important about what this book is about. It's about wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. I'm giving you wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. But if we assume that another way that repetition is used, not just in books of the Bible, but throughout the larger framework of Scripture, is by uh, different authors repeating the words of other, that other books have used to kind of make a connection, you could call these hyperlinks, like on a Wikipedia page. You see the little underline thing, and you click on it, and it takes you to another page. 
that the biblical authors will regularly use little words repeated together or themes as a way to get you to click on it and it takes you to a different story. Without giving an example, we'll just make this be the example. When you look for that, okay, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, where do these three show up exclusively together? There's not a lot of them. There's a small handful, and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly at all, every single one of them connect to the Garden of Eden. Let's look at this together. Proverbs 3 in verse 19 and 20, what does it say? The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down their dew. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge right here are portrayed as what? God's creation tools in creating the world. It's kind of his shovel, his trowel, and his shears. God sets out to go to work in creating, and he goes to the back shed, and he gets out wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. All right, let's get to work. And he gets out, and he begins to work, and he creates this really good world. And the language here of the, uh, the dew dropping down, and even in verse 18, which comes right before this word, explicitly says that wisdom is a tree of life, which we'll talk about more about the tree of life in a couple weeks. It's evident that the authors want us to have Garden of Eden on the mind. That God in the beginning, he goes to the back shed, he gets wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and he sets out to create the Garden of Eden. And so with these tools, he builds this world and this place where humans dwell with uh, God, where blessing and abundance and fruitfulness. I mean, it's the, the ideal good life with God in creation, and God is the one that's carved out the place for just that to happen. Now, very shortly on, we find these characters invited into the garden of Adam and Eve. And as the story goes on, we find that they foolishly choose to define good and evil on their terms. They lean on their own understanding, as Proverbs 3 is going to put it. And in doing so, they, they discount and cut themselves off from the life, from the tree of life, from the good life. They are exiled out from that place of blessing and abundance and fruitfulness all the while still getting this promise that one day there would become one who would regain, bring them back into the good life, the Garden of Eden ideal, this one, the name that would be identified as the Messiah, the anointed one, this coming king. But as the story progresses, outside in the exile, it lands them in Exodus, and that story of the Israelites being enslaved, being freed by Moses, and then brought out into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, God gives them plans for what else but a little temporary garden of Eden, the tabernacle? Exodus 31 says this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called Bezalel, and I have filled him with God's spirit. With what else but wisdom, understanding, and knowledge? Specifically to do what? To craft, to make the tabernacle and all of the furnishings within, the tent. So here we have God, the Garden of Eden has failed. God's got a, a plan where the Messiah is gonna kick that back off for the whole earth. In the meantime, here's little Bezalel. They're out of there and he goes, all right, Bezalel, I'm gonna go back to the back shed. Hold on a second. And he gets wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And he goes, okay, here you go, bud. And he hands them to Bezalel through his spirit and goes, okay, I want you to build this tabernacle with all the furnishings there within. If you read through Exodus 31 and you find the way, it's described as a little tiny Garden of Eden. And God's presence comes and dwells in the tabernacle and their forgiveness and blessing and abundance and fruitfulness. It's the sign and the symbol and the experience of the good life with God for the people of Israel. All built with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. As the generations go by, they find themselves then landing in the promised land. They think to themselves, you know what we really need is like a permanent fixture for the tabernacle, a temple. 1 Kings 7, verses 13 and 14 King Solomon sent and brought Hiram, and Hiram was what? Of course, he was full of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, specifically for making the temple, for crafting and creating the temple. God, once again, he goes into the back shed. He gets wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. He bends down through his spirit, and he gives them to Hiram. He goes, here you go, bud. You're going to build a temporary little garden of Eden. This place that is, as you await for the Messiah to restore all of the earth, that you guys might mediate the blessing and the goodness and the life of the Garden of Eden out into the world. But Israel, just like Adam and Eve, they choose to define foolishly good and evil for themselves. They lean on their own understanding. And just like Adam and Eve, it lands them exiled from the goodness with the garden, the temple destroyed. 
all the while still waiting and looking for this Messiah King who would come from the line of David, the line of Solomon. And so this is the point of the story that we're at when Proverbs was compiled and brought together. No temple, no little temporary Garden of Eden place for them right now and waiting for the Messiah, but, but wondering when or if he's going to come at all. This is when Proverbs comes together. The big question, how do we get back to the Garden of Eden? How do we find the good life in the midst of the brokenness of this world? And Proverbs opens, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. This book will give you, like Betzalel and Haram, God's going back to the shed. He's getting his tools so that you might build a little temporary Garden of Eden. But what do we build? If not a tabernacle or a temple. Chapter 24. By wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now, house throughout the scriptures is used its poetic symbolism with a very wide range of what can be fit within a house. It can be a reference to one's actual physical house one's family, one's character, the life that they live, or any endeavor that they give themselves to in their life because the house was the center of work and family life. In essence, by wisdom, a whole life is built. By understanding, it's established. And by knowledge, it is filled with precious as pleasant riches. Those two words also are a design pattern linking back to Genesis 1 and 2 when it describes uh, the tree of life and goodness. So here, what all of this is building up to, this little design pattern thing here, and if this is new to you, that's okay. Here's the baseline of what, what it seems to be going on. Why the book of Proverbs? Proverbs has been written and compiled to provide us with the garden tools to build our lives, our families, our character, our work, our church community, our church family into these little temporary Garden of Edens. All while we too, like them, are now awaiting the Messiah, not in his first coming, but in his second, that, that we can find the Garden of Eden, find the good life, imperfect, but still perceptible. And not simply, see, this book is not written simply so that you might be a better person, but so that you might find the good life, and, and from that, you might radiate the wisdom and blessing, the fruitfulness and influence, the wisdom of God out into your community and into the world. Or as Keith Powell prayed for this series in our prayer night, that through Proverbs, our church community would become billboards of God's wisdom. So far more than just being a book of little good advices, this book is central to the narrative that the Old Testament is telling. What do the people of God do when there's no temple and no tabernacle and no king and it seems like all is lost? The book of Proverbs says you've got the tools right in front of you to build this little place where the presence of God is pleased to dwell and goodness and faithfulness and fruitfulness can be found even in the midst of a broken and dark world. This is why the book of Proverbs, and it's far better than just putting it on a calendar or a coffee cup. Now, the next question that we have to ask in light of this is who is the book of Proverbs for? Who is this book for? Verse four tells us to give prudence to the simple, the first and immediate line of who this book is for is for the simple. Now, this could be translated as naive, as ignorant, or as unthinking. It's related to another Hebrew word of the meaning of to be open. To be simple is to be open. It's to be someone who is uncommitted. They are uh, someone who keeps their options open, their mind open, not in a good way, but in a foolish way. They keep their mind open. They are young, or as it can be translated from the back end of verse four, immature. This book is for immature, ignorant, simple people. Now, who is that talking about? Some of you are thinking about some of the people in the room around you right now, like nudging them. That's you. Proverbs' whole point is, if you're reading this, that's you. You're the simple. You're the ignorant one. You're the naive one. You're the one that is far too more open-minded and open-optioned than you ought to be. That there is a good life that requires you closing your mind on something, of giving yourself, committing yourself to something. Now, we don't like being called simple or naive or immature. We want to argue. Hold on here. Do you know how much money I make? Do you know where I went to school? But it sets it before us as this is who you are if you are reading. But it's worth acknowledging that simple is not a moral statement. It's not to be wrong or bad. It's exactly what Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. 
unformed, unfa- open-minded, and, 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 and naive. They were ignorant. They needed instruction and guidance. And the problem was not that they were simple. The problem was that in that place, they leaned on their own understanding and unformed and unfashioned thinking. To be simple is not bad, but it is a place of precarious potential because it can go one of two ways. As it says in verse five, that we can join the wise, or as it says at the end of verse seven, we can join the foolish. To be simple is not to arrive at your destination, but to be along one of two pathways, leading in one of two places. To be simple is to be vulnerable. To be misled in one of two ways. As Ray Ortland Jr. puts it, he says this in summarizing and talking about what it means to be simple. He says, everyone is on a path. Everyone is going somewhere. When we feel stuck, Even when we feel trapped in our lives, the truth is we are still in motion. Life is a journey and the end of it all is not just a place, but a condition. We are becoming the end of our journey, wise or foolish, and every moment takes us closer there. Proverbs begins with the vision of human beings, you and I, as as we have used before, trajectorial beings. We have a trajectory that we have set ourselves on. We don't stumble into being wise. We don't find ourselves, oh, how did I get here? I'm I'm a foolish person. These are the destination of a life of decisions. This is why some of the most foolish and the most wisest people are those at the back end of their life. They have arrived at the trajectory of their decisions, and now they they are wise. They're like a saint, or they are some of the most foolish, deceived, naive, and ignorant people. No one decides to end up in in that space. But over decision after decision, and Proverbs says, you are headed on one of two. The simple are those who have not yet seen this trajectory at work. The wise are those who have seen it and in light of it have given themselves to the way of wisdom because they know it doesn't come naturally. And the foolish are those who even when they've seen it, they have chosen to either ignore it or they lean even more headlong into the way of foolishness, finding that its pleasures, that its riches, that its resources are far better than the way of wisdom. But the book invites us, if it's going to be a book for us, to stop and identify ourselves humbly as the simple, which no one wants to do. But to put this another way that maybe is a little more gentle for some of us, at our prayer night, I keep talking about it, this is just an advertisement for our next one that you might join us there, At our prayer night, there were four or five different people that we bounced around through that in the midst of prayer began confessing this sensation and the experience of what they called drift. This experience that over their lives and over the past few months, they found themselves as though wanting to go one direction with their lives or feeling God calling them that just the natural trajectory and pull, the drift of this world, they found themselves as being prone to being misled or deceived or misinformed either actively by another person or by the ways of the world, as Paul talked about it in Ephesians. You see, to identify that drift and to go, man, I see the way that this is pulling me and I don't want to be that kind of a person. I want to go somewhere else with my life. To identify that drift is to identify yourself as simple. You're identifying, okay, I'm, my openness is not leading me in the direction that I want to go. And so Proverbs, this book is for the simple. It's for the drift prone. It's for those who need the only word that gets repeated three times in our passage, instruction. This book is for those who need instruction. Those who need training, that need discipline, that need correction at times, and that need warnings even. Specifically, not for the sake of themselves and not for the sake of the comfort of someone, but for the sake of walking and finding themselves in the place of wisdom. Proverbs is for those who need wisdom. Or to summarize, the book of Proverbs, who is this for? It's for the simple. Hi, welcome. The simple who are in need of instruction towards wisdom. Those who are simple and need instruction into into how to find and receive the garden tools, how to build the good life for themselves, and specifically instruction away from folly because they don't want to go that direction. The question is then, how do we ensure that we walk wisdom's way? 
If we get to the place where maybe some of you are still arguing with yourself in your head about whether or not you are simple, for those of us that get to that place, we identify ourselves as simple and in need instruction, walking into this book, how do we ensure that we receive it and allow it to actually give us the instruction that we so desperately need? It's all about the posture of how we read it. Verse seven says that the prerequisite to finding this instruction and wisdom, the beginning of it all is the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord, this is not pertaining to snakes, fear of the Lord of, of Zeus in heaven with lightning bolts, but fear of the Lord is you're gonna find it repeatedly throughout Proverbs and throughout all of the scripture. Fear of the Lord is always about an awareness of our human wisdom's limitations and our hu- wisdom, our human power, our human wisdom, our humanity's limitations before God. Fear of the Lord, as we could put it, is, is powerful uncertainty, where we look out at creation and we look in at our own lives and we identify ourselves as simple in the face of it all. And from that place then, we choose to look up to God out of a place of wonder and curiosity and humility, willing to lean and learn from him, to no longer lean on our understanding, but to receive wisdom from him. At the end of the book, as it comes to a close, but right before the final chapter, we find Agur, another wise saying in a speech that is worth, um, worth a good amount of time. But let's, let's read this. Reflecting on the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, he writes, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a human. Anybody feel that way? Like every Tuesday, I'm too stupid to be a human. I have not the understanding of a human. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge. Anybody catch the three right there? Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the winds in his fists? Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So listen, y'all, don't add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. The fear of the Lord, receiving from Agur's speech here, is that we identify ourselves as being those without wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, those without the garden tools, those who are simple and in need of instruction. What this experience feels like. Do you want to know whether or not you've reached the point of being simple to identifying and seeing yourself as such? Are you, have you ever reached the point, or do you live here, of being double weary, two times over, and worn out from trying? That you feel like a failure at being human, at times too stupid to be one. This is where the fear of the Lord starts. And where the fear of the Lord regularly will bring us back to when we arrogantly or pridefully think that we've got it all figured out. But the whole point of the fear of the Lord is that it actually motivates and moves us into a place of relationship with God. Because as we look at ourselves, we we identify ourselves in the simplicity, the lack of, of understanding that we have, and we look to God. We look to, I love that it's not just fear of God, but the fear of the Lord, the fear of the, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of creation and, and the Exodus redemption. He's the God of the coming Messiah. Looking at that God and saying, your word is true. As Agur says, you are the shield and refuge. And in fact, you are the creator who's put all of this together. And, and though I don't know you like I should, I want to. This is the beginning of wisdom. This posture. Because wisdom, just like grace, is something that you cannot earn. It is something that can only be found by humbly coming to God and saying, I need it. And so that fear of the Lord, that provides us with the very thing that Adam and Eve were missing in the garden when they leaned on their own understanding choosing to find good and evil for themselves instead of staying within the instruction of God. What they were missing is a fear of the Lord. And Proverbs in an opening says, do you want wisdom? Do you want to rebuild what Adam and Eve lost in a temporary sense with your own life right here, right now? Then it will require you to find and hold on to the very thing that they were missing. An awe, a reverence, a wonder, a humility before the creator God. 
This is the proper posture that brings us to the book of Proverbs, a fear of the Lord, a humility before God. God, just simply, I am simple as I look over my life. I am simple and in need of instruction, and I'm asking, would you provide it for me? And the book of Proverbs is God's answer, yes. Now, before we close, though, I want to point at Agar's little speech here. Because right here, he doesn't simply just say, what is his name, the creator's? He says, what is his son's name? Did that stick out to any of you? Like, what is that doing here? This strange mention of the son of the holy one, the son of God. Now, remember, when this was compiled and brought together, those who maybe were, you know, relatively maybe called the son of God, all the kings of Israel, how did that go? They were all failures. So Agur can't be talking about any of the kings of Israel. This son of God can only be him reflecting on this coming future Messiah, this son of God, this one from the line of Solomon, the line from David, this coming king. The book of Proverbs is inviting us in the midst of our fear of the Lord, not just to look to God with a fear of the Lord, but an anticipation and an expectation for its fulfillment in his son. The prophet Isaiah, he was on to this. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, describing the coming Messiah. He says, there shall come forth one from the line of David, one son of God, one son of Solomon, the Messiah, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of what? Wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah here, picking up that design pattern of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, says the coming Messiah is going to be a true and greater Hiram and Betzalel, a greater human, better than Adam and Eve, one better than all of Proverbs. He is going to live into the fullness of what Proverbs is, is calling and expecting, that he will be the one that will wield the tools to truly build the Garden of Eden, the good life that overcomes and builds in the midst of this world. And unlike Adam and Eve, he will truly be filled with the fear of the Lord. What is his son's name? For us as Christians, we are gathered here today because we believe that this answer was met in the person of Jesus Christ. And so more than just instruction and wisdom, Proverbs, if it is truly fulfilled in Jesus, actually gives us deep insight into who Jesus is and how he ticks. We better understand Jesus as we read and reflect on these words of wisdom. As you look for these, if you read through these in the coming weeks, just to ask, where is Je- how did we see Jesus living in this? How is this true of Jesus? We better understand Jesus as we read this, but we also better understand our need for Jesus as we read Proverbs. Because what this book is going to do is it's not just going to instruct you in wisdom, it will also call out your foolishness. Yesterday being August 14th, I sat down and went to Proverbs 14 before breakfast. And I read through it, just kind of glazed over, grazed, glazed over the, thinking about donuts. <laughs> I kind of just moved over at, uh, Proverbs 14, and I, and I rested on verse 29. It says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper acts foolishly. And as a father with a four and a one-year-old, man, the closest thing to the Garden of Eden would be me in the midst of them being the sort of father who's slow to anger and really, really patient. So I read this at breakfast, I'm like reflecting on it, I'm like kind of trying to memorize it really quick. Okay, this is my one for today. I'm gonna keep thinking about this, and I'm gonna do my, my darndest to apply this thing. And so even at breakfast, you know, we're sitting down with pancakes, and we're talking, and I'm like, this is what I'm thinking about today. Dad's gonna try to be really patient. And I was like, okay, you know. And of course, what, what happened yesterday? Try as I might, it was a whole day of acting foolishly on my part. Of just just hasty temper, like just everything would set me off. And like on one level, like there's like, you know, there's grace, they're toddlers, like it's, it's physically impossible. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe that's just my, my simple, I don't know how to be human. And so as I came to the end of the day yesterday, man, I, I just prayer, and just reflecting, I was like, man, I feel like agar, these, these I, I feel double weary, I feel worn out, I feel like I'm too stupid and simple to be a human, let alone a dad. And so, God, I need greater understanding. Like Proverbs 14, 29 says, to be slow to anger. 
I need you to fashion and form me. Give me those garden tools and, and help me learn how to wield them so that I can be a person of patience, so that the Garden of Eden could be experienced not just by me, but by my children, by my neighbors, by my wife, by my friends, by our community. See, the book is gonna call out the ways that I need Jesus, not just calling them out, but also then moving me to seeing the deep need for forgiveness for my folly and its fallout. It leads us to the cross where we find Jesus as the perfectly wise one, the awaited and anointed wise king who's come to establish the Garden of Eden. But what seems like foolishness to us is the way that he initiates and brings it is that he brings out life as he actually receives what Proverbs calls the end of foolishness, death. And he goes down that way so that we might be saved from our foolishness and receive what Proverbs regularly calls the end of wisdom, life. See, this book moves us, not just into a fear of the Lord and instruction of doing better and trying harder, but it will call out the ways in which you need Jesus. The way that we need not just instruction, but forgiveness. And for people without a sacrificial system and a temple and a tabernacle, Jesus is up to the task. And not just up to the task, he has already done abundantly more than we could ever misstep into. And so how is the book of Proverbs to be read? With the fear of the Lord and the fulfillment of Jesus. And so as we set out on this series, today, Proverbs in its opening words, its opening lines has shown us this book, what's before us, the next 15 weeks, is a book of wise words to the weary and the confused, at the lack of the good life, the garden of even living within this world. As we look out at violence and war and injustice and we wonder, can the good life be experienced, maybe imperfectly, but actually perceptibly experienced in this life, Proverbs says that's exactly what we're here to do. And by doing that, it provides us with those garden tools that God himself has used so that we might build our church, our lives, our families, our homes, our, our work. That as people come into contact with us, it's like they're walking into the Garden of Eden of blessing and abundance and influence and the wisdom of God radiates out into the world. Temporary while we await the return of Jesus but all the same, still here. And the thing is, we need those tools because at the end of the day, try as we might to deny it, we are simple. We are prone to drift into foolishness. We, we say maybe to just about every single thing that we can. We avoid saying yes and committing ourselves to about as much as we can. And Proverbs says the way is to receive from this instruction, God's word as being the thing that you hold tightly to in the midst of this. And Proverbs is here to give us that wisdom and instruction. And that simple status of identifying our deep need for the instruction of God is what then moves us now to be able to open the book from a, from a true posture, the fear of the Lord. We're ready to learn, we're ready to hear. We've identified ourselves before the, the, the creating and creator and redeeming God and humbled ourselves appropriately. But even more, as we find the story of the Bible continues, we find this book all about the fulfillment of Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do, and our deep need for him, and the fact that he's medicine in the midst of all those needs. Let's pray.